Jason, guess what Sunday is? What's, I know what it is. What day is it? Oh, I don't know what day it is, but I know what day it is. <laughs> that made no sense. I don't know what the number of the day is. Well, it's the 14th. It's May 14th, and it's Mother's Day. Yes. I love you, Mom. I said it before, Alex. I love you more than Alex loves his mom. My mom's on vacation right now in Florida, so I have no sympathy for her because she's living the dream. She's doing what she should be doing on Mother's Day, enjoying herself on the beach. Everybody take note that Alex has no sympathy for his mother. Oh, shut up. You were hard to raise. I saw videos of you as a child. (laughs) You were... Damien level demon possessed. That's why my mom is on vacation right now. She's making <laughs> she's making up for the time lost spending wrangling me down. But mom, you know I love you. So if you ever listen to this episode, I love you and happy Mother's Day. But Jason, this is, not only is it uh, Mother's Day this weekend, but it is the second week of our feminist series. That's right. So all month of May, we've been doing we're going to do episodes revolved around women, women's issues, and I'm just. You know what? Your the last interview that we did was with your wife Jess. Yeah. Which if you haven't listened to it yet, please go back and listen to that episode. Yes. It's it's very foundational to what Jason and I are doing this month, but I decided to go get some resources. Okay. For what uh for just studying and getting more prepared for this month. And I found this and I thought you and I could really benefit from it. It's a CD series by John MacArthur called God's desire for a successful woman. And I thought maybe you'd like to listen to that. So here you go. It's two. It's a two-part disc set it's because there's only CDs. two passages on women in the Bible, I oh guess. Oh, my goodness. So John MacArthur, uh, Jason will listen to that. And I'm just kidding. You don't have to. <laughs> I'm reading the back of it. <laughs> Read a little bit. Oh, uh, conventional wisdom says the Bible standard for women is outdated in today's liberated society. I don't know, dude. It- I don't want to read it all. Yeah, no, it's it's okay. Anyway, Jason, you don't have to. You know, if you don't want to listen to it, it's fine. I'll, ta- I'll no, take it I back. No, I just love the rose on the cover. <laughs> oh, gosh. John MacArthur, go listen to our episode with Brian Sand. Get, the the where, whole broken rose thing, it just doesn't work. Where did you get that from? Uh, Somebody gave me a bunch of CDs because I used to have a long drive to work. Yeah, And they gave me a bunch of John MacArthur CDs because I used to be a huge John MacArthur fanboy. I'm not so much anymore. So for everybody who hates John MacArthur, step back a second. Not a huge fanboy anymore. Uh, Says some good things, says some really bad things. Um, And that was just one of the CDs. So there. God's design for a successful woman. Proverbs 31. Yeah, that's the chief text. <laughs> that's the chief text is Proverbs 31, which goes right into of the face of what is. is what your wife said in of our first episode. Of course it is the chief text. So, because why would women want to learn anything else about, you know, there's Eve, you know, you sinned, you messed up, you ruined everything for everyone, mm-hmm. and then there's Proverbs 31. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully our, our, our some of our guests will shine some more light on the women in the Bible, which I know they will. Absolutely. But anyway, this week's episode... We have dun, da, 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 Hillary McBride. I am so excited. A feminist therapist, I might add. Double whammy. Yes. Um, Hillary came on our episode today, and per usual, I mean, we first heard about her on the Inglorious Pastors yep. podcast, and she did a few episodes with them, and they were just, just chock full of just very, 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 and I'm not over-exaggerating by the, how many times I'm saying very, but just extremely intelligent thoughts and comments. Yes. And guess what? Per usual, 
Hillary did that again. Yes. And left yeah. us speechless a few times like, oh, I didn't even think about that. Thanks no. for blowing my mind, Hillary. Yeah, she did blow our mind several times. So on today's episode, Hillary is going to talk to us a little bit about body shaming. Mm-hmm. She's going to talk about the book that she's writing about that. And we just kind of have a little bit of a discussion about what we can do maybe for the next generation as far as what can we do to help stop the, the body shaming that's going on in our culture today. Porn, Trump, it's all included. Yep, it's all included in this episode of Not Your Pastor's Body Shaming episode. Jason, we got another sermon contribution from a woman for Feminist Month. Yes. And it's coming your guys' way this next midweek. Yeah, I'm excited that um, Alicia McClintock sent us in a sermon, and Alex, she's a pastor. Wow. I think this is our first sermon from... A a female pastor? Not just a female, any pastor. Oh, wow. That we're posting. Really? Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking back over all of our submissions and I'm like We have we have a couple of others, but this is the first one that we are posting from a pastor. Oh gotcha, gotcha. Because gotcha. this is not your pastor's podcast. And we're take we're we're hedging our bet that most of our listeners, Alicia's not your pastor. Yeah. Absolutely. She's she's a pastor, but not your pastor. But needless to say, Alex, this month is amazing. So we had sermons from Laura Pruno, mm-hmm. Ashley Easter. And now Alicia brings a sermon. We've got more sermons to come this month for more women. Mm-hmm. And it's so exciting to gain that perspective. Dude, I am pumped out of my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very insightful. And I'm looking forward to people hearing the rest of them. They're going to be great. Go to www.notyourpastorspodcast.com backslash pulpit. Listen to the other sermons. Read our guidelines for contributing your own sermon mm-hmm. and send us one in and next month alex we're gonna we're gonna have some more men we've got tons of sermons backlogged yeah keith giles yep author of the book jesus untangled crucifying your we politics haven't forgotten about you keith. to pledge allegiance to the lamb no we have not forgotten about you we're gonna post that sermon and it's amazing michael j basinger <laughs> <laughs> you laugh every time we say this why do you do that I don't know. I just think of all the ridiculous things he said. Michael J. Basinger, which I have changed my Twitter account handle to Basinger Name J because that's as much as I could fit in there. <laughs> but just to troll him. But he he sent in a sermon, Alex, and it's fantastic. So that's that's coming up later. But for now, all women, Alex. Mm-hmm. So without further ado, let's hear from another woman, Hillary McBride. Hey guys, we are joined here with Hillary McBride. How's it going, Hillary? Hello, it's fantastic. I'm doing well. How are you guys doing tonight? Uh, pretty good. I just got out of my kids. Uh, my son, who's in first grade, had a concert. 
And so we got to go hear all the kids sing their songs. And <laughs> right on. <laughs> yeah, he has. He is such a little ham. He's just smiling nonstop. Oh my gosh! I mean, <laughs> from ear to ear. So Hillary, where are you calling from? You're also from the land, great land up north. I am. Yeah, um, I'm coming from Vancouver. So I live in oh. Vancouver. So the Canucks. What about the Canucks? Yes. Yeah, Canucks is, that, is that your hockey is team? We're big that? hockey fans. We're, we're oh, giant you're hockey starting, fans. You're just, naming, you're just naming Canadian things, hoping that it would <laughs> yeah, yeah, Maple syrup. Them. Wayne Gretzky. Ah, oh, dang it. Does it matter to you? I'm just naming things. Does it matter? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, they play here. Um, I wouldn't advertise it necessarily, but I'm actually more a, a basketball fan because I'm married to somebody who is very heavily, uh, heavily immersed in the NBA. Oh wow! Emotionally immersed, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. So I'm I'm watching playoffs, and NBA playoffs right now at home. Yeah. I'm lost. I I know zero about basketball. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I threw you for a loop. You were just going to start naming Canuck stats, and I. Well, well yeah. Well, I've been uh, I've been uh, uh, on Twitter with Dan Taylor back and forth ah, the last yeah. couple of days because of the Oilers. Oh, so boy. him and I are going back and forth. I told him to arrange a prayer circle around Rexall Place. Oh, yeah. And I know it's not named Rexall Place anymore. And then I saw that they won like seven to one. I was like, Dan, you did it, man. You like yeah. arranged a prayer circle. I hear so that's let's... how God works, right? It's yes, like, he does. Absolutely. And then we get the thing that we want. And <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So that's an that's an interesting kind of like connection. So yeah. we got a hold of Dan because of you. Yes, it's true. You did, yeah. So, and then we and we heard about you obviously through Inglorious Pastors, but we originally wanted to get you on the show to do our porn episode, and you were you were working on some school stuff. I think was that, the issue. Yes. Well, I'm I'm kind of working on all sorts of stuff. I got <laughs> school and books and work coming out my ears right now. So I'm I'm glad that we could make this work, and I'm glad you got to talk to Dan before before I was able to come on. Dan was spot on. Good good pick, Hillary. He was Thank hilarious. you so much. He and I work for an organization. It's um, we're pu- pushing pause on it right now because of some babies that were had by other members. But called Ladies Man, which is about shifting culture of masculinity to end the oppression of women by changing men instead of making violence against women and the oppression of women a woman's issue, making it a man's issue. And so I actually am connected with him through Ladies Man. And so we work really closely on a bunch of gendered issues and kind of strategizing around how to reach people to shift um, cultural narratives around what it means to be a man, what it means to be masculine. And porn is a, a big part of that. So Dan and I. Dang, that sounds like something I want to be a part of. Yeah. 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 We talk about porn lots, but not in the way that, you know, you normally think of a th- people talking about porn together i don't know what normal people talk about porn <laughs> like but you get a pastor and a therapist and a pastor comic and a therapist talking about porn and it's an interesting, <laughs> interesting so conversation absolutely yeah. so for for those people who have not heard about you uh through the inglorious pastors you yeah. you were on uh, two of their podcasts. Uh, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but oh, if you go I've through their them. new, if you go through their feed, uh, episode fifty-four and forty-six, Hillary McBride was on the Inglorious Pastors, and that's how we first heard about you. Mm-hmm. But why don't you tell people, for those of you who are hearing your voice for the very yeah. first time, a little yeah. bit about yourself? Uh, so I'm a therapist, and I live in Vancouver, BC. I work in private practice, and I also am a doctoral student right now at the University of British Columbia. And I do research and clinical work and I write and speak and all sorts of stuff. 
And one of the things that I'm really passionate about is how how gender issues influence our experiences and influence um, mental health. And I work as a pretty, pretty staunch feminist. um, So outlining the oppression of women as a significant cause that needs to be addressed from lots of angles. And so I do a lot of feminist research. Uh, that's yes, that's possible to do research from a feminist perspective. And, (laughs) um, yeah, we have empirical data around the oppression of women and how that influences men and women and all sorts of stuff. So I do that. And in my clinical work, um, I do a lot of body mind body stuff. So, um, neurobiology of trauma, body image, um, how we feel about our bodies, developmental transitions in the body. So when the body changes, what does that mean for us? And, um, yeah, do, do lots of writing and reading around kind of embodiment. What does it mean to be, to be a body? And that's, I think that actually comes out of, um, not only my struggle to be, be myself in my body and, but also this thing that I experienced so much in the church growing up about like dualism and the flesh is bad and the spirit is good and, and really moving away from that to a kind of more integrated perspective of spirituality and health and, um, connectedness to who, who we are and how we were created to be. Yeah. So that's a little bit of my stuff. And I've got a, I've got a book (laughs) coming out, um, in October called mothers, daughters and body image, learning to love ourselves as we are, which is really about, um, how as women we can change our relationships to our bodies and create a new narrative about what it means to be a woman. So that's what I do. That is awesome. And that's already yeah. like on Amazon pre-order, isn't it? I you, looked it up today. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm pretty pumped about it. That is awesome. We'll include a link to that for oh. sure. So what led you to be a therapist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I'm have i a therapist, I think, probably for lots of reasons that all... Um, all wove together in this really interesting thread. I, I grew up in a, in a home with two therapist parents. And so in a, in a funny way, it's kind of in me. I remember doing dream analysis as a family when I was young, just sitting around the dinner table. That sounds like so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And lots of conversation about, um, you know, interesting, interesting cases that my dad was working on. Obviously, like, confidentiality and stuff, but we would talk about like kind of unique human experiences and how people's suffering affected their lives. So that's something that's always been a part of my, my way of seeing and experiencing other people in the world. But I had said, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be a therapist. Um, I, I'm going to be my own person. And so I studied performance violin and that's actually initially why I went to university and realized part of the way through that, that it wasn't really going to work for me, that there was some stuff that was coming up related to how I was feeling about my own body and how I was experiencing myself that I thought, you know, I, I can't keep doing something that feels to me like it's just about perfectionism. So in the process of getting my own therapy and kind of moving away from, um, from the violin world, I, I had some, some bad therapists and a few really, really good therapists. And it I can really, relate. Yeah. Like, it, you know, yeah, I've heard your story yeah. that, that sometimes when someone's in a position of power and they, they don't see us, they just kind of see the symptoms or they see yep. the problems or they give us solutions without actually helping us feel known and kind of enter into the therapeutic relationship of having someone really see you and hold space for you. Um, well, having, having good therapists or having one in particular who was really transformative for me made me realize like, 
there is something here. Like I, I want to be with people in their pain and I want to be with people as they learn to walk through hard seasons of their life so that even if I can't take things away, which I don't really believe that I can, but even if I can't solve things or fix things for them, that they'll know that they're not alone in their suffering. So for me, that's a big part of becoming a therapist. So was it hard growing up with therapists as parents to get like get away with things and to get like what you wanted (laughs) no because therapists you know as much as it's part of who you are it's also a job and there have been times when um when I've said to my parents like mom stop you know stop telling me the right answer I want you to kind of get upset at me and fight back I don't want you to (laughs) empathically and make a summary statement but I think (laughs) but there is also um you know, part of being a therapist is being aware of your own stuff. It doesn't mean that you don't have your own baggage. It means that you, at least for a while you're sitting in the chair with a client across from you, you put your stuff on the shelf. But yeah. I'm not um, I'm not wearing my therapist hat all the time. That would be incredibly exhausting and unsatisfying for the people in my life because it would mean that they wouldn't get to see who I really am. They would just kind of, again, hear me make empathic statements. So... I know as a therapist now too, that my parents were, you know, just being them. And sometimes that meant that they did stuff that was very untherapist like, and other times that meant that they wore their therapist hat home and, um, having a parent who, yeah, who is, uh, so, so helpful to other people in carrying their pain, especially if you know that they do that for other people and then feeling like, Hey, how come you didn't show up for me for that reason? Whereas if it I didn't have a therapist parent. Maybe they wouldn't be on the hook in that way. <laughs> right. I'm, like, I've got so many like, like therapist questions now, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Like, so let's dive in. You, do you want to ask the question? Yeah. You have a book coming out that you mentioned and coming mm-hmm. out in October. Um, yeah. Mothers, daughters and body image, learning to love ourselves as we are. Mm-hmm. And what well, a topic that's been on like the top of my mind lately is body shaming. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you're going to address this a lot in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us, uh, tell our audience, what in the world is body shaming? Well, it makes me wonder what you're thinking about when you say that, because there's like us shaming somebody else's body uh, or someone shaming our body, and then the internalized process of body shame, which is us kind of shaming our own bodies. So do you have a, a particular one of those that feels most interesting as a place to start? Uh, I would, I'd like to, I guess, say that for mainly for people projecting certain body images or bo- like expectations for bodies towards women, mm. especially because this is our feminist mm-hmm. month. But like one of the things I'm interested in, because this is a personal story, is the, the image or the body shaming that women feel f- uh, projected on them from other people. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife in particular it has experienced this because uh, her whole entire life, she's been tall and skinny. Right. And she would uh, hear from different people like, well, are you not eating enough? Like, are you okay? Are you sick? Um, mm-hmm. She even heard one time from a coach uh, of her soccer team like to say, say, hey, can you take one for the team and eat more hamburgers? Wow. Hmm. that's that's brutal and so that that's what that's the thing i'm coming from so i guess for from a historical standpoint has body shaming especially these these expectations that we have for women has this always been in our history as 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 humans 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's been around for a really long time, and it shows up in different ways. We see that depending on what the cultural, sociocultural standards are, that women are shamed into becoming more like those standards. So in cultures where women are considered desirable for being a little bit larger, then often they're they're shamed for being thinner. Although I think in, in North America, we've got this really dysfunctional thing with, with our bodies as women and how people treat other women and their bodies is that no one's ever good enough. There's the target keeps yeah. moving. Um, if you're if you're too thin, you're sick. If you're too big, you're lazy and immoral. Um, I think if you're if you're thinner than somebody else, usually because of their their shame and their judgment, um, they're going to make you feel bad about that. I mean, Matt, it just seems like as women, we can't really win in our society. That, that there's always something. Boobs aren't big enough. They're too big. Why are you so sexual? Why aren't you why aren't you sexual enough? Why is your body the way that it is? I think it doesn't really matter what women's bodies look like. There's always some sort of question about why why they are the way they are. Yeah, so there you're facing this from the outside, mm-hmm. but then what happens internally? Like you have to go home with those thoughts yeah. or those comments and you just have to you just have to live with them. Yeah. And so how much does body shaming lead to depression? Yeah, I mean, there's this comes back to the conversation we were having just a few moments ago about dualism, which is to say that the body or the flesh and the mind are different is to imply that in some way, if someone makes a comment about our bodies, that it doesn't affect our minds because, as the dualistic notion goes, they're distinct. Our, our self is in our thoughts. But coming from a more integrated and, and holistic and maybe embodied perspective, uh, I would say that we are our bodies. I mean, we are, we are not necessarily limited to the function of our bodies as people who have disabilities know, but it's, it's reductive to say that, that our bodies and our minds don't influence each other. We know from kind of phenomenological and philosophical approaches, as well as neuroscientific approaches to the mind-body issue that everything that happens to our body happens to our mind and everything that happens to our mind happens to our body, that it is through our bodies that we experience the world. It's the body is, is the home of the soul is the home of the mind. So when someone makes an attack on the body for whatever reason, I think it's um, naive or ignorant to say that that doesn't, that could not or would not affect the person's experience of their self or their identity so we know that that body shaming, um, most typically in younger years, would look more like bullying, probably. Yeah. That it is extraordinarily destructive for a person's mental health because we're social creatures. We're designed to function in relationship with those people around us, and to we're designed to want to feel like we belong, not only from a survival perspective, but also from a thriving perspective. That. I believe that we're created to be relational beings and to be in connection with those around us. And so when the people around us, especially those who we um, kind of estimate as having higher social value, when those people shame us, that is corrosive, erosive to our, our sense of well-being and doesn't always but can lead to things like depression, anxiety, eating disorders, body shame, um, perfectionism, all sorts of stuff. 
Yeah, I know for me personally, like when I had anxiety disorder real bad, mm-hmm. and then I started on the medication, I gained a ton of weight. Yeah. And it, my body was changing so rapidly. I think I went from 180 pounds to 250 in like months. Wow. And yeah. Not that, not that I, I, I don't want that to be something that discourages uh, somebody from, from taking the medication that they mm-hmm. need. Because it was worth it. Trust me, it was worth it for for what I was going through mentally. I needed that. And if I had to do it over again, I would gain those pounds. But that said, is like like you're already dealing with this mental issue. And then on top of it, you're gaining the weight. And then the comments start to roll in. Yeah. And it's like, I was fine until the comments started rolling in. Like I was okay. Like your grandma saying you're a little pudgy. (laughs) I got that one time. It's just all those things, yeah. Well, think about like all of the changes that happen when someone starts taking an SSRI or any other kind of antidepressant or anti-anxiety. There are significant changes that happen to the entire self, including, you know, sleep changes. And, you know, some people have dry mouth and feel a little fidgety. So there's a massive number of, of changes physiologically that occur. But we really start to see how much as a society we focus on weight when that's the only one that people comment on. Yeah. Right? So changes are happening to the whole self. But the fact that we exist in a culture which is incredibly objectifying and and tends to value people based on how they appear, that change has more social clout, if you will. I think if, like, if you look at, I was just talking about this with a friend yesterday, but in this image culture that we live in, where even da- dating sites now are based on appearance alone. So you swipe left or right on someone based on how they look. So everything, oh man, everything that we do to re- try and reinforce that appearance doesn't matter is is debunked by these dating apps, which which highlight that appearance is the thing that makes you attractive to someone or not, as opposed to so many other parts of your character. Yeah, you just like I'm I'm going off my outline here. Um but you made me think of something and that's mm-hmm. kind of leads me to this question and I kind of got this off of uh Bill Nye because I've been watching sure. all those on Netflix. Sure, yeah. And they had this uh specialist on and she was I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head. I think she said like 80% of your body type is inherited and you mm. can't really do anything about mm. it. You you are what you are. Is that is that true? I mean, I mean, surely exercise could play into it and things of that nature, but but how much of us is just us and who we are? Yeah, I think that there is. I mean, that hits into some really interesting things like genetics and environment and other stuff um, and levels of stress and whatnot. But there is something that in kind of the biopsychosocial perspective of of body weight and shape that we learn about what's called the the set point, which is that your body is going to gravitate to a certain size and shape. And you can work really, 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 really hard and maybe get some big results right away. But in terms of long-term maintenance, you're probably going to hang out at where your body is most comfortable being. And so even people who go on diets will often find that they hit this plateau where they can't lose any more weight. It's like their body just doesn't really want to be a different size. So yeah, there I'm is, there. <laughs> I'm right there. <laughs> yeah, there's there's something about being healthy and you know exercising regularly and eating foods that are nutritious and good for our brain and good for our you know our skin and our organs and kind of keeping us nourished and energized and fed and full. But 
I think that outside of that, um, I don't know if we should be doing too much to really dramatically change the way that our bodies look because they're probably going to return at some point to the place that they want to be. And we know that when people yo-yo diet that they're actually kind of increasing risks for heart health and that they're more likely to gain more weight after they've been dieting. And so it's better to just kind of make some lifestyle choices overall to either be a little bit healthier um, and not only for kind of size and shape, but for mental health, not to make these kind of drastic caloric changes one way or the other. Yeah. So like that, that leads me to think is how do people become content with the body they've been given? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's always going to be hard to be content with a body when our body is this this package, this container that the world sees and interacts with. And if the world sees and interacts with something and they continuously tell us that they don't they don't like it, we've got to have something bigger or deeper or more powerful than what our culture is saying to anchor us into knowing that we're enough just as we are. In some of my research, uh, particularly some research that I outline in in the book that's coming out, uh, which was the focus of my master's thesis, was looking at, at people who do love their bodies just as they are and like, how did that happen? How does that, what do we learn from those people about how we can be okay with who we are? And even though I wasn't looking for people who had faith or spiritual practices, every single person who met the criteria for inclusion in my study all had some sort of religious or faith practice huh. that helped them know that no matter what the world said, that they could get their worth from a deeper or different or more wise or long lasting story about what it means to be human. Wow, that's, that's pretty huge. Yeah, it is really huge. And so people would say things like, you know, if, um, if people think that my body needs to be a certain way for me to be attractive, then I remind myself that because of God, and what God has done for me and how God loves me, that there is no limit to that. And the attractiveness that I have to another person is is never going to be enough to make me more or less valuable in God's eyes. Yeah, it just it breaks my heart to mm-hmm. think of, uh, I mean, our pastor, uh, he mentioned this in a, in a sermon uh, this past Sunday. He's got four daughters. Mm. So he's like... Um, He's on top of it when it comes to, I mean, he feels awful about what his girls as they're growing are going to have to go through looking yeah. at advertisements and everything else and everything that, that says they should look this way or should be right. a certain way. And it like, it breaks my heart to think that there are hundreds of thousands of girls who um, should have no problem yeah. being content with their bodies aside from what our society tells them that they should look like. And they, you know, go to bed every night super depressed or upset or feeling like they aren't good enough or they can't do good enough or they they try so hard to change themselves and they can't. And that's exactly what the gospel is in in a Mm. way is it it's not about the physical appearance. It's about it's about the heart. So that spiritual connection. Mm hmm. I think that's that's so important to hear. Well, I want to up the ante a little bit and tell you that actually our most current research says that it's not only just hundreds of thousands of girls and women, but it's actually 90%, Holy sometimes crap. up to 93, sometimes as low as 85. So a, a, a kind of conservative estimate would be 90% of women, girls and women 
are dis- dissatisfied all the way to completely and utterly ashamed of how they oh look, my. hating, hating themselves because of how they look. So this is the majority of, of females, which again, reminds us of how gendered this is. This is not, the stats are different for boys and men, although they are increasingly um, problematic for boys and men in Western culture. There is something inherently dysfunctional about how we have created women to, to kind of the story of femininity, the story of womanhood in, in the West and in North America that is is poisoning our experience of being a body, being a self, being a being a woman. That just Here, blows my mind. <laughs> here's a here's a que- here's a question, and this might sound like super arrogant, but mm-hmm. one of, one of the things that like when I listen to when I listen to you or I listen to Jason's wife mm-hmm. Jess talk about feminism, yeah, I feel like you guys are the feminists that people don't really think of when you they think of feminists they think Mm. of like the the celebrities that claim to be feminists and i feel like some of the celebrity feminists don't really do much for the cause because Mm. they project certain images that they think women should be like so like i'm thinking i think of like people like katie perry who says that she's a feminist Mm. it's like you literally promote sex and a certain body image Mm -hmm. every night when you take the stage and you do nothing to to me, so like, how much of this right. is? I, we may have already asked this question, but like, we have these social constructs that mm-hmm. say women have to be this certain way, and I'm like yeah. curious, like, how much are these quote unquote feminists really helping the cause? Well, I guess it depends on what kind of feminists they are. I mean, I oh. I really identify with. Oh, you sound surprised. Ooh. I, I am really. This, Like I said, this whole month is like a whole learning experience we're, yeah, we're for in, Alex. We're in full learning mode here. Good, so. I like it. Uh, there's a few books that you guys might be really interested, like Guy's Guide to Feminism and Feminism for Everybody. And there's a bunch of books I can send links to about um, yes. what it means to be kind of informed about feminism as a man um, and how actually feminism benefits men in terms of breaking down social narratives and social constructs about masculinity, which are problematic and oppressive to men as well. So lots, lots to learn there. Um, I identify as a a radical feminist or what you could call a second wave feminist, which is about, uh, the return radicals and like kind of the return to the root of what feminism is about. And so, Often as second wave feminists, we, we have some problems, um, theoretical and otherwise, with the third wave feminist movement. Uh, the third wave feminist movement is, um, it has been useful for some, for some purposes, but the second wave critique of the third wave movement is that they're taking, they're co-opting their own oppression and taking it um, as a sign of empowerment that they are doing the things that they were oppressed into doing, but are now just saying that they're doing it with empowerment. So a good example of that would be using, um, going to a, uh, you know, a, a pole dancing class for, for physical activity. Oh, I'm, w- I'm with you here. And so saying, um, you know, well, look at how empowered I am. And yeah. the second wave critique would say, you're doing the thing that, everyone wanted you to do what makes you think that there's empowerment in that like aren't they winning because now you're doing what they want you to do but you're actually saying that it's your idea so the idea is that 
from second wave feminism, um, there is a, a very, uh, there's a critique of gender constructs as they in kind of uh, enable the oppression of men and women and an idea of wanting to break down those, those um, gender binaries because of how they reinforce the oppression of women. And so taking the same thing that's always been oppressing you and choosing to do it while people are, you know, standing by the wayside, um, cheering and applauding you for being this hypersexualized image of a woman that they've always wanted you to be. I don't know how empowered that really is, uh, except that you're just performing the version of femininity that's always been considered to be most desirable. So maybe, maybe that's getting empowerment and desirability confused. Yeah, I have a good example of this. Uh, and my wife, when she was playing roller derby and she joined mm-hmm. uh, she joined Flint, their logo was a woman where you could see half of her ass mm-hmm. and half of her boobs mm-hmm. bent over a roller skate wheel. Sure. And and this was like their this was their empowerment. They were embracing that. And yeah, and my wife's like, no, what the hell? We're changing our logo to now. It's just big, big, bold block letters that say Flint. And right. to, to me, that looks way more empowering because you got a group of people who gathered, you know, together because of the city they live in and mm-hmm. and fighting for, you know, they're skating, obviously, and, and right. them skating in themselves is women's empowerment because they're strong. Um, yeah, women, but who can kill people? Yeah, my wife could. My wife could <laughs> destroy damage. some people. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. But so you know, they're get, they're gathered together, and they're they. I almost say they they operate like a church. You know, they're mm. they're helping collect water for the Flint water crisis. And mm. Wow. And, and they're you know, um, they're doing all kinds of things for the community for for women who are are you know downcast, I guess. I think where where I struggle with the kind of the second wave, third wave debate, which is when you get a little bit more into feminist issues, can become quite quite vocal and at times quite aggressive. The, the, the area where I struggle is that as a human being, I am sexual. And as a human being, I'm allowed to experience my sexuality and enjoy that and own that as a very important part of my identity and my being. However, how do we embody our sexuality without it leading to us being sexualized as an object. And I think walking that tension between those two things is something that neither the second wave or the third wave camp has figured out. How do we embody our sexuality as women and own it without it being this kind of oppressive, sexualized and sexual objectification that has always been um, a component of the patriarchal oppression of women? I think it's, I, I work with um, kind of feminist clients all the time who say things like, I, I am sexual and I want to be desired by my partner, whoever I'm with, but I don't want that to be something that's restrictive or makes me feel like I'm being used or like an object. Yeah. So it's, it's, there's some gray area there. And I think it, it would be really nice to say, do this and don't do that. And there's, I have some pretty clear boundaries about certain things that are okay and aren't okay. But I, I don't know. I think it's more complicated than either of the sides is making it out to be. And what we really need to do as humans, regardless of whatever movement you want to get behind, 
is to treat people as human beings and not um, bones with flesh on that are either too big or too small or too sexy or not sexy enough, but to really see the human behind or the human within the body. Yeah, and that, to me, is one of the most fascinating things about the person of Jesus. Hmm. When, when I'm reading through the New Testament, and I'm seeing his interaction with people, and I'm seeing his interaction with women in particular, mm-hmm. I, like, I'm always fascinated by, okay, so we, we know Jesus was without sin, and which means, what, that he never lusted after a woman? I mean, I, he, there's no way, like, I know, like these questions are too big to answer, I think. Mm-hmm. But there, I mean, obviously he was able to look at a woman and say she is very attractive, but then not lust after him. Mm. But, but what's fascinating to me is how approachable Jesus was. Like women could come up to him and have these, uh, you know, almost outrageous and outlandish acts of worship at the time. Mm-hmm. I, think of, I think of the women who are, pouring oil out on his feet and then then washing his feet with their hair in front of a group of men. I think it's in Luke chapter seven, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and here the, the Pharisees and the higher ups are thinking, well, if this, if this man really was the son of God, if he really was who he claims he was, there's no way he'd be allowing this sinner to do such a heinous act. Yeah. They they saw him as like, they they looked at the women as like well their their job their purpose is to be these sex objects these prostitutes right. and Jesus didn't see that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he he knew about it but he he looked past that so right yeah so even the social label of um, prostitute or social status wasn't um, wasn't a barrier for Jesus to see a person's human worth and value yeah. yeah. So my question to you, Hillary, yeah. is how do we, how do we become more like Jesus? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how do, no, like uh, jokingly, but seriously, yeah. like how do we not? I mean, is it a, is it a language thing? Is it a mm. mindset? Is it even curable or solvable? Or mm. I mean, how do we how do we look at the humanity of and look at people for who they are and yeah. not what they look like? I wonder what would happen even if we just allowed ourselves to use that question um, as something that guided our daily interactions. Like, how do we be human? How do we see a person's humanity and their their um, immeasurable worth as kind of as a as a created being instead of the things that they can do for us or how we can use them or in what ways they they make us scared or make us feel better about ourselves? Like, what if it was about us? being able to see and celebrate a person's inherent worth and and really asking ourselves what that person has to teach us and how they can they can um, influence our understanding of what it means to be human. So I think a lot of the problems that we have, just I would, if I was to make kind of a global state one, would be that we consistently objectify people. And sometimes in sexual ways and other times in kind of more functional ways, like what or relational objectification, like what can you do for me? Do you make me feel good about myself? And there, there is something very different when we start about starting to ask ourselves, like, who are you? And like, how can I get to know you? And and what has life been like for you? Like, it's a very existential and phenomenological approach to relationship and human experience. Like, what does it mean to be human? And who are you? How, how have you been through the world? And how does that influence who you are? And how does that affect me? And, and what can I learn from you? And how can we influence each other in ways that make the world a better place? 
So even starting with your question is a very important way to, to kind of begin this journey of trying to figure out what that means. But then I think on a, on a more societal level, we need to speak out against injustices and oppression that minimize people's experiences. Those would be things like the ableism and the, and the racism and the sexism that is prolific in our socio-political context. And naming those things and pushing societally towards a different way of valuing humans is essential. I mean, to link this back to Dan's talk, I would say that we need to eradicate um, pornography, in particular, violent pornography and pornography yeah. which is destructive to our social narratives of, of male-female relationships and what it means to be a woman, what women are valuable for and whatnot. So I think that we need to make the choice individually to do something different and to kind of keep seeking that out. And when we move away from treating other people like they have worth and value to become aware of that and then return to that, almost as if it's some sort of meditative relational practice of noticing we're distracted and then coming back to the thing that we want to anchor us. And then to kind of get involved in socio-political and religious action and movement to eradicate the oppression of people. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot that I mean, I was going to ask, I was going to ask you too, like, yeah. what would be your advice for the church? But I think so much of what you just said applies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, I think that the church, church can sometimes act like just this microcosm of the world and, and we want it to be different. And I think we all stand behind behind the idea that it's different. And when it is, that's really, really, really good. Yeah. But it's just a bunch of human people kind of continuing to hurt each other. Yeah. <laughs> but with the added bonus of at least some sort of admission that they need help in not yes. doing that. No, that's key. So I, I think that it's, wouldn't it be amazing if things were different inside the church? Wow, like what an incredible witness that would be. We could say, look, there's proof. There's proof that when you know Jesus, like it makes things different. But um, that doesn't always happen. And so I need, I think we need to do better, all of us as humans inside the church in particular, but as humans, just kind of treating each other better and, and moving away from our selfishness and our kind of survival instincts. Hmm. My big takeaway is like, I mean, this is a, this is a this is something that I know, and but it's just good to be and reinforce. Like, people have worth; they're mm -hmm. not worth something to you because they can do something for you, but they're just worthy because they're humans. So that's that's right. my big takeaway. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and wouldn't that be nice if if all people knew that not only about others but about themselves? That okay, so maybe how I appear doesn't match the ideal, but. At what point did I learn that that meant that I was any less valuable? And and who said that the ideal was actually something that was going to make us happy anyway? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, where did the ideal come from? So thinking, for me, a big part of the... Oh. And porn and sexual objectification, all this kind of stuff. Did we cut out for a second? We did cut out for a second. No? I missed the first okay, part Do you want of me that. to start over? Yes, yes please. please. Okay. Where did you hear me stop? Um, you said porn really loudly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That came through. Yeah, yep, I yep, heard that loud and clear. That's the only takeaway, just porn. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah. Um, that, oh, let me see what I was going to say. 
the connection with all of this stuff with with porn and with body shame and with sexual objectification is is that we we need to start questioning where the normal came from. Okay, so if something's normal, does that mean that it's okay for us? Okay, everybody does it. Does that mean that it's actually really good for me or is that it's making me more of the person that I want to be? Thinking critically about things is an important, I think it's a political act as well to say I'm going to be, um, I'm not going to lay down and consent to the things that everyone is doing just so I feel like I fit in or just so I feel like um, I don't have to take up a stance of, of doing or saying something different. And so the, I, I really believe, especially with clients, like I often ask them to think critically about the social narratives that make them feel really crappy about themselves. Like, where, well, where did you learn that? And, yeah. and how does that hurt you? And would you ever want there to be another way? And what would it be like if there was another way? And what would that feel like? And what would keep you stuck from acting out um, that new life that you would want for yourself? I mean, it's simple to, and even if we get back to the body shaming conversation, if, if I ask people, like, what would you do with all of your energy if you stopped directing it into hating how you look? And I've had people say, wow, you know, Damn. I could, I could work yeah. another full-time job. I could, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you know, I could write books. I could learn another language. I could travel the world. And, and what would you do with all that extra money that, that you normally spend on products and classes and books and whatever, just to, just to make you feel like you become more like the uh, ideal. Oh man, I could, I could retire. I could buy a whole new wardrobe that actually fit me. So I didn't cry every time I put my pants on and they didn't fit. You know, people say, that that they could you know go on massive vacations so I think as a as a feminist I take a very political stance on all of the conversations that we have about bodies both in the church and outside the church and look at how uh, capitalist structures actually encourage women to hate themselves it sells products and I know that makes me sound like I'm a little bit of a I don't know conspiracy theorist or something like that but when you look at how much money is invested in perpetuating this construct of female desirability? I, oh my gosh! I, like it's um, it's mind-boggling to look at how how many people make money off of women hating themselves. Yeah, I think, man, I I would almost say you can't limit it to just that, though, because. Isn't that like the goal of consumerism is to make people feel uncontent? Yeah. Is to make them feel like garbage about what they have or to sure. always put something out there that, that carrot that's just kind of slightly out of reach? Yeah. <laughs> or the yeah. thing that can get you there faster to yeah. the, the body image that you want? Mm-hmm. Oh, dang. Oh, mm-hmm. man. Five-minute abs, four-minute abs. What's blowing my mind is you said, oh, at 85 on the conservative side, but 95% of women feel ashamed of their bodies mm-hmm. like the skin that they live in and that is like that is it's like it blows my mind it's gut wrenching it is gut wrenching yes like it is it's so sad to know that just by being born with a vagina you are extremely likely to at some point if not your whole life completely hate who you are just yeah. because you were born that way that to me and we know the rates are, are lower for men. And so although, like I said before, they're rising, there is a gendered component to this, which means that there's something written into the story we talk about 
uh, and how we raise young girls and how we, you know, how we praise women, that there is something about being a desirable woman that is connected to how you look, how you appear, how, how wanted you are by other people based on what you, you look like to them. It's, I, mm. I feel when I talk about this stuff, I feel so, um, so fired up and so passionate that it is literally what I do for my life. This is my life's yeah. work is to write books and to research and to do therapy with people to try and help them not feel like who they are is worthless just because their body looks not like the magazine cover. Mm. It is for me something that has affected me so deeply personally, but I see it affect so many people around me that I feel like, how can I not? Yeah, that and I is think so needed. <laughs> it's such an appropriate response though. If you knew that 90% of people of a certain group were going to, you know, whatever it is, have contact with some sort of lethal disease, who, who wouldn't be out campaigning? But yeah, the part yeah. of the, the feminist critique is that it is written into our patriarchal construct of women that this is part of the struggle of being a woman. And so we accept it and normalize it and yeah. actually kind of encourage it in such a way that we forget that it is erosive and disruptive and damaging to humans. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Hillary, do you have time for one more question? Yeah, or two, or two yeah, more? <laughs> yeah, one or two. Yeah, no problem. Okay. Yeah. okay. So for me, Hillary, this, gosh, this hits so hard for me because... Mm. I have a daughter. Yeah. And you saying these statistics, it's like, oh my gosh, there's a 93% chance, 95% chance that she's going to struggle with this. Yeah. As as a dad, yeah. or the parents out there that have little girls, what could we, what can we start doing from, from, because I mean, she's 17 months. She doesn't know. Right. Yeah. All, all she knows that I, that I'm dad, dad, and that we have a dog. That's all she knows yeah. at this point. Awesome. Yeah. You should have um, saw the smile on her face when I walked in the door. She probably thought you were me. <laughs> it melted my heart. Yeah. She's like, a beard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what what could I do as as a father, as as parents, what can we do to kind of like help reinforce this from a young age that no, you don't have to live up these expectations yeah. the world puts on you? Yeah. So there are, there's three specific things that I can tell you we have empirical evidence about. So this is not just like some good idea I came up with in the shower. These are like things that we have seen proven in research. Um, it comes from Neva Paran's work. She's a scholar out of University of Toronto who has spent her life researching this very thing. And she has what's called the developmental theory of embodiment. Uh, and so the three components of that are mental freedom, social power, and physical freedom. And so physical freedom, I'll start there, is knowing that you can move your bodies in ways that make you feel strong and powerful and competent. So much of the gendered narrative of femininity is like, stay small, keep your body uh, orderly, um, don't make anyone uncomfortable, don't take up too much space, both in kind of your size, but also how you move. So be restricted, be constrained. So part of preventing body hatred and preventing eating disorders as well as helping girls from a very early age realize that movement and freedom in their body is good and possible. So not perpetuating this, the narrative of kind of being a woman means sitting politely, quietly, um, and not playing sports or being active, go home and, and read and knit and stuff like that. Don't, uh, 
don't play soccer, don't box, don't, um, don't snowboard. So that boxing would be sweet. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got, um, physical freedom and then we've got social power, uh, which is, we know that people who have, um, kind of status socially who have privilege are less likely to hate the body that they live in. Because if you're born of a certain color in a certain environment, even though you may, not feel like you're different than anybody else just because you have the different skin color other people treat you differently and that's a body that you're born into that can sometimes feel like a prison and so helping people feel like helping your daughter helping kids feel like they have social power in some way even if that's not something that they can get ethnically or racially uh, can be really important. So helping them hang around with people who are like-minded, who value who they are, who uh, admire their skill set, who can challenge them and uh, support them socially. Getting getting a sense of belonging is an important part of the social power. And then in terms of mental freedom, it's having the ability cognitively to think critically about the world that we live in. So helping your daughter by saying from very early on, like, you see that commercial? man, what do you think that says about girls? Yeah, I've seen you, like, I've seen you play soccer. Why aren't there any girls playing soccer in that commercial? That doesn't make any sense. What do you think would be a healthier commercial to see? Or like, what do you think, right? So getting girls to (laughs) articulate um, messages that they see and having conversations with you about the gaps in media. Whoa, you know, when I was looking at this magazine the other day, all the bodies look the same. What do you think about that? Yeah, let's talk about how the bodies look the same. But what do your friends look like? Oh, yeah, your friends, some are tall and short and some have glasses. And, you know, kind of looks like all the girls in this magazine look the exact same. That's not that's not real. That's not real life. Man, right? that's so huge. Getting, getting girls to think critically about the world that they live in and then actually to take, if they want, a, a stance on some of those things. Getting girls to... Um, write letters to the newspaper about stuff that the newspaper is saying, getting girls to get involved in politics from an early age to, to help them know that their voice matters in their communities, to help girls take positions of leadership so that they are consistently breaking down uh, those, those scripts of what it means to be a woman and getting the lived experience of power by, by living outside that very narrow box. Wow. <laughs> That's that right there. If I can just get a snippet of that and just repeat, <laughs> repeat, repeat, dang. Yeah, there's. I write tons about all this kind of stuff um, in the book that's coming out. So for, for the listeners and for you guys um, who want to learn more about the developmental theory of embodiment and how, as women, we can change our own experience of our bodies, but also participate in changing the script for the generation that comes after us, for people who have kids and people who don't, I think we have a responsibility of of giving the people who come after us a better shot at freedom. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, one more looking, looking at, Oh, do you have time for, I'm looking at my timer. It's at 41 yeah, yeah. minutes. Let's do it. Yeah. Cause I, okay. I emailed my client and said I'd be a minute late so we can oh, do one more okay. question. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, yes. pleasure. No, I'm happy to do this. I'm so sorry. It took so long. Okay. Let's hit it. All right. So the final question I had is, uh, something I had read it in a blog of yours. It's, it's mm. about, it's about, uh, Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And Again, Jason. I know it, but we kind of brought this up in an earlier episode right after the election. And I mm-hmm. said for, for so many 
um, women out there who have been molested or abused, when they look at Donald Trump, they see more than just a politician. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They see the person who abused them, the person who molested them, and they see him getting away with it. Right. And actually being rewarded in some ways. Yes. And you wrote a blog about the trauma that um, occurs. And I'm just thinking, okay, we might have four to eight more years of this guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how, you know, somebody reliving that trauma every time they see him, I can't even imagine, first of all. Yeah. But second of all, how do we, like, the the response of just get over it is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, how do we... How do we get through the next four to eight years is, yeah. I guess, what I'm asking. Well, I think it's um, we need to take a stance as as human beings who believe that sexual assault and um, sexual violence is wrong. And we can't forget about what happened. I mean, in some ways, people feel like they've moved on. I, I haven't really heard very many people talk about the fact that he was accused of um, sexually assaulting someone and actually kind of in even more than that was caught on tape referencing that kind of aspect of his, his existence. I haven't really heard that mentioned except as a bypassing, you know, a a passing comment about, Oh yeah. And he's a, you know, he's a rapist or he's a sexual like perpetrator or something like that. But I think that we need to come back to that and make a stand for all the people who've experienced sexual assault or sexual violence and say, we haven't forgotten about you. Um, what happened isn't okay. And we're not going to forget about it. Um, I think we need to put money and resources into supporting survivors of sexual assault and do a better job as churches and communities of learning about the impact of trauma on trauma survivors so that we can support them and their, their symptoms and their lives following the trauma. I think that it's important to, Things like the Women's March were a great place to start, but we need to keep pushing and lobbying for justice um, and for, yeah, for the end of the oppression of women in all sorts of ways. I mean, when you when you elect a president who says something like that, but then people go home and they masturbate to watching violent pornography, it feels pretty hypocritical to me that we would say that what he's doing isn't okay when we're using somebody else's body for our gratification you know, however many hours a week. So I personally think that pornography is a much bigger problem than we acknowledge both in the church and in North America. And that I, I have a basically a zero tolerance policy. I mean, there's with thinking about pornography and its use because of how it is um, kind of so complicit in the oppression of women and even women who aren't, if you could say performing or aren't victims of the pornography that it changes our culture's perspective on women and women's sexuality and what what's okay to how it's okay to treat women. So um, I think that's a big part of it. If we're saying that the president can't do that and can't take advantage of other people's bodies just to get what he wants, then then nobody else can do it either. Yeah, I think I'm I think I'm right there with you from the the porn aspect sure. for sure. Yeah. Hillary, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you oh. th- for just working through the diffic- the technical difficulties with us and just Oh man, such a pleasure you guys. Thanks for for listening and asking great questions and for having this important conversation on your podcast. Yeah. Oh my I gosh, I I'm wish blown we away. I'm I wish away. I wish we had more time cuz I would ask you to interpret a dream for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um 
but I know my boys were super excited that I said we were having we're having Hillary on the podcast. And oh they yeah, were, they were thinking uh, Hillary Clinton. <laughs> so, you guys so have like, big time overnight. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we won't keep you any uh, much longer, Hillary. So thank you again so much, and uh, we'll definitely. Uh, What's the name of the book again? One more time. And when's it come out? It comes out October 2017. It's available pre-order now on Amazon and Indigo and I think a bunch of other sites. Uh, And the name of the book is Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, Learning to Love Ourselves as We Are. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much, Hillary. Yeah, hopefully we can have you on again. I'd love that. That'd be great. Take care. Awesome. See ya. Jason. I feel it's appropriate, but I'm going to say it. Okay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Can you put a dang Gina in right here? Uh, dang Gina. <laughs> Got it. Thank you so much, Tony, for that. Um, but man, Hillary McBride. Yeah, dude. Her advice for you as the father of Ada there at the end. I'm blown away. Gigantic. I feel like you should have that on repeat. All like, the time. I'm going to have that on repeat when I'm bringing up my boys. Like... Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think I think those are good conversations for boys too. But man, like that just hits so so home for me. And like the statistics that she read, I'm like, and I'm like, that crushed me, dude. That there are 95 percent of women, like of our, our women listeners, 95 percent of them. But we have people that like Hillary that are helping us have these conversations, and hopefully for the next generation, things will be different. Let's get that statistic down. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, so far Feminist Month, I'm liking it it's so far. It's off to a great start. Yeah, dude. Jess, Jess nailed it out of the park. Yep. Uh, well, what would be the roller derby equivalent of that, Alex? It would be like getting lead jam, but on a power jam. So the other jammers in the box, and you're just racking up the points. Okay, we'll go with that. A thirty point power jam. That's what wow. I'm going to say. Yeah, that's huge. Dang. So anyway. We got a ton of feedback yes. on the Jess Duncan episode that you, I accidentally married a feminist. <laughs> I, love the, I love your title for it because I didn't know what you were going to call it. I didn't come up with it. Jess did. Oh, I was just going to put classic feminist move. I was going to put Jason married a feminist. No, she's like, you should put Jason accidentally. It's like, all right, we'll go for it. Absolutely. But no, we did get a ton of feedback on it, and I, I don't, I'm not going to read it all, but our buddy Brandon Andrus. Oh, I love you, Brandon. Yeah, absolutely. He was on our uh, Not Today Legalism yep. <laughs> episode. I just love saying that title. Not Today Legalism. But he's like, just, just killed it. Great words coming from Brandon. So she did kill it, dude. She did. Been thinking about it all week. Yeah. And then I'm totally like... Uh, in fan mode right here yeah go for it man because jamie wright jamie the very worst missionary wow who jess and i have been following forever would you say years yes years dang i mean jess started then she like turned me on to jamie and like her blog is just absolutely hilarious so if you don't know who jamie the very worst missionary is you need to go look her up she's amazing uh, she said, uh, she's quoting our episode. She was, she says, so my wife comes home from roller derby practice and says, I'm a feminist. And then she does like three of the crying laugh faces. Like, 
Oh, the emojis? <laughs> yeah, and then she goes, hashtag duh. <laughs> <laughs> and then she said, hashtag keep up the good work. Aw, so, thanks, Jamie. Well, that makes me feel good. Like, yeah. Like, we're doing this Feminist Month, Alex, and we're just reaching, man. Like, we just want to learn. That's all it is to it. So uh, Proverbs says, uh, a wise man listens, and that's all we're doing. Absolutely. And then... Got biblical there a second, sorry. You did. You went, you went full pastor mode. <laughs> you did. You got your Bible out and everything. Looked it up real quick. It was really, really impressive <laughs> how quick you turned those pages to Proverbs. <laughs> like, it was bookmarked. Like, you were planning it. Um, Rachel Maggio? I'm guessing at her name here. She says, thank you, Jess, for being on Not Your Pastor's podcast. You gave me courage to talk to my conservative pastor husband about egalitarianism. You e- said egalitarianism. 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 Those are hard words to say. Well, you have to get it because... I'm not ashamed. <laughs> I usually just call it Eagleton. It's just easier. <laughs> Eagletonianism. That's harder. Never mind. Um, then she put hashtag secret feminist, but that's awesome, Alex. That's like the goal of our podcast is to get people having these conversations. Mm-hmm. Get out of your comfort zone yeah. a little bit. Talk to somebody who's a feminist. They're yes. not all bad. Yeah, and we learned from Hillary that there's like different waves. Yes, I didn't know that. Totally feminist Padawan here. Yep. And I th- I feel like we're learning some stuff. I'm super excited for what's to come. But Alex, remember Small Town Pastor who left us a five-star review? Yes, I I recall. Saying that she still doesn't get hockey? Yes. Well, she messaged us on Facebook like we asked her to. (laughs) And the first thing we learned is that Small Town Pastor is actually a woman. Yeah. We didn't know that. We maybe put some like uh, gender, uh, I yeah, presets sure. on the fact that because she because she said she was a pastor that she was probably a male. Yeah, but she's not. No, nope. she's a she. <laughs> but she is awesome. So you know we were going back and forth about hockey, and she's talking about Atlanta and how the NHL has moved two teams out of Atlanta, the Atlanta Flames, and then the Thrashers, and then she said she felt. Uh, uh, betrayed by Peter as Jesus, you know. <laughs> but then she kind of blew us away, Alex, because she says her entire staff listens to our podcast as a staff I'm requirement. Still, I'm still blown <laughs> away by that. And she said, when one kid wrote Not Your Pastor's Podcast in Koran on a, on a restaurant table paper during a staff meeting, I knew I had to back off. <laughs> <laughs> so... Special shout out to, we don't know the name of the church and that's fine. We don't need to know the name, but if you are on the staff of Small Town Pastor, we love you guys. Thank you so much. Uh, keep up the good work. She Well, she had some super kind words for us. Alex. Yeah. Can I read them? Because yeah. I always want to remember these in podcast form, not just in written form. Yeah. Because I might lose the message someday, mm-hmm. but this podcast will be around until Jesus comes back. <laughs> She said, know that you are appreciated way down south in the most southern of all cities. I don't always agree theologically, as I come from a strict Wesleyan foundation, but I find your honest engagement in a world that does not value authentic conversations to be grace-filled and authentic. I enjoy the challenge to think beyond the echo chamber of my own denomination. Like, if I had to write a description of what we want our podcast to be about... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she just wrote it for us. Like, not that you have to, you don't always have to agree. Just listen. Just, that's what we're about on this podcast is just listening. 
I'm still blown away. I can't. I can't <laughs> it's handle a staff requirement. Yeah, it's a staff requirement. My staff requirement when I was on staff at a church was to write down what I did every hour. Yeah. <laughs> you guys have to listen to a podcast. Way cooler. Anyway, Jason, thank you everybody just so much for getting a hold of us on social media. We we really appreciate that, and like that, that's one of the reasons why we want to do this podcast is to help facilitate those conversations and just if we could just help anybody in. I know that just seems kind of weird that because we're, we're just talking and we're just we're having people on that we find interesting and think that are you know, intriguing and you we want you to listen to them. But that's the reason why we do this podcast is just to help people and to just facilitate those conversations, I guess. It blows my mind that we're in full blown learning mode in your basement with John Wayne posters everywhere. Hey, and that he's pe- the Duke. People reach out to us, uh, and you can do that on Twitter, our Facebook, our Instagram. Send us a message. We're here, and we love hearing from people. And leave us a five-star review. Absolutely. So we will read those. can hear us. Absolutely. So, Jason, you know, I was thinking of the one piece of advice that I would give the staff at um, Small Town Pastors Church. Yeah. And I think you know what it is. I do. So what do you want to tell the staff at Small Town Pastors Church? When life gets rough, yep. when things get hard, mm-hmm. you got to remember. Really simple. Always keep your stick on the ice. Love you guys. <laughs>